Let's turn to Matthew chapter 10. Matthew chapter 10, and we will read from verse 16 to verse 33. 16 to 33. Behold, I send you forth as sheep in the midst of wolves. Be ye therefore wise as serpents and harmless as doves. But beware of men, for they will deliver you up to the councils, and they will scourge you in their synagogues, and you shall be brought before governors and kings for my sake, for a testimony to them and the Gentiles. But when they deliver you up, do not worry about how or what you will speak, for it shall be given you in that same hour what you shall speak. For it is not you that speaks, but the Spirit of your Father which speaks in you. And the brother shall deliver up the brother to death, and the father the child, and the children shall rise up against their parents and cause them to be put to death. And you shall be hated of all men for my name's sake, but he that endures to the end shall be saved. But when they persecute you in this city, flee into another. For truly I say unto you, you shall not have gone over the cities of Israel until the, until the Son of Man be come. The disciple is not above his master, nor the servant above his Lord. It is enough for the disciple that he is as his master, and the servant as his Lord. For if they have called the master of the house Beelzebub, how much more shall they call them of his household? Fear them not, therefore, for there is nothing covered that shall not be revealed, and hid that shall not be known. What I tell you in darkness, speak in the light. And what you hear in the ear, that preach upon the housetops. And do not fear those who kill the body, but are not able to kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both body and soul in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a farthing? And yet one of them shall not fall on the ground without your father. But the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Do not fear, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. Whosoever, therefore, shall confess me before men, him will I confess also before my Father who is in heaven. But whosoever shall deny me before men, him will I also deny before my Father who is in heaven. Let's pray again. Father in heaven, as we look at this portion of Scripture, as we look at these sayings of Jesus, that were uttered on earth 2,000 years ago. Lord, we, we pray that you would fill us with your Holy Spirit and you would cause us to see just how relevant these words are to us today. And I pray for each one here that we would hear not from me but from you and we would be listening for you and we would leave here having heard your voice and changed by your voice. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Well, we're jumping right into the middle of a discourse, right into the middle of a commission. And this is the commissioning of the 12 apostles. So Jesus, at the beginning of this chapter, is sending out the 12 to continue his own work. So in the last chapter, at the very end, we saw that Jesus looked out upon the people and had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. They didn't have leaders who were teaching them about God. 
The Pharisees were the people's leaders, and Jesus was critical of their teachings that they gave to the people. Their teachings left the people hungry, malnourished, and fainting. And so Jesus looked on compassion at people who don't know God. He had compassion when he saw people not know his Father. And Jesus came to reveal to us the Father. That was his whole mission. But he realized that I'm only one man, and I can only do so much. And so Jesus sent out the twelve to carry on the mission that he himself had. Notice that Christ sends out the twelve to carry on the mission that he himself had come to do in the earth. And that was to preach about the kingdom of God, the rule of God in the earth. Jesus said in verse 14 and 15, whoever shall not receive you nor hear your words when you depart out of that house or city, shake off the dust of your feet. For truly I say unto you, it shall be more tolerable for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than for that city. So Jesus says, I'm sending you out to preach the kingdom of God, to carry on the mission that God has sent me to do. If they don't receive you, that's the worst possible thing that a person could do. To not receive the apostles' teaching, which is simply an extension of Christ's teaching, and as Jesus is going to say later in the chapter, to not receive the apostles is to not receive Jesus. That is worse than Sodom and Gomorrah. Sodom and Gomorrah will have a better day on the day of judgment, and they're going to have a bad day, than those who reject the message of the apostles, no matter how pious or good they may look on the outside. Many who rejected the apostles' message and Jesus were religious. And Jesus here says, it'll be more tolerable for Sodom and Gomorrah, the irreligious people, than for the religious who rejected your message. It'll be worse for them. That's a very sobering saying. And the question we have to ask Jesus, or we, we feel to ask Jesus is, how many will reject that message, Jesus? Whoever doesn't receive you, how many will that be? Now notice, brothers and sisters, that in the following passage that we read, and all the way to the end of the chapter, Jesus spends only a tiny fraction talking about those who will receive the message of the kingdom. We didn't even read it this morning. It really begins in verse 40. He that receives you receives me. That's a positive verse. But before that, the vast majority of, this, of his teaching the apostles when he sends them out on their task is about rejection. This passage that we read is all about rejection. What a, what a sending. Did you notice that? That's the thing to notice this morning in our passage. Now this morning... This sermon will be split into two sections. Number one, I want to talk about what we are to expect as Christians when we share the gospel. What are we to expect? And number two, what should our mindset be in light of this? So number one, what are we to expect as Christians? Now, 
Jesus is sending out his apostles isn't typical of a, of a pep talk that you would you know, think a person would give if they send them out on a task like this, right? Usually if someone sends out ambassadors or if someone sends out messengers, they're going, come on, we're going to go out there and we're going to win the world, right? We're going to show them what we've got and we're going to win people and it's going to be great. Anyone who's in sales, probably the person who's over you when he sends you out tries to encourage you, like, you're going to make money, you're going to make sales, therefore you should go door to door, therefore you should be diligent knocking on those doors because you're going to be successful, Look at what Jesus says in verse 16. The strangest pep talk imaginable. Behold, look, I'm sending you like sheep among wolves. Okay? <laughs> what an amazing statement. Can you mentally picture what that looks like in your head? Sheep among wolves. Sometimes we talk about as sheep, there's, you know, we're a flock of sheep and there might be one wolf in our flock who's disguised as a sheep. They come to you as wolves in sheep's clothing. But here Jesus says, I'm sending you as sheep among wolves. Can you imagine what, what happened to a sheep among wolves? <laughs> the wolves would pounce on the sheep. Why would Jesus send them out then? You see, brothers and sisters, this is not pessimism. Jesus is not saying we can't do it. It's just going to fail. This is prophetic. This is what the prophets have spoken about in the Old Testament. This is God's program. God has designed the ages and at this time he sends forth Christ and he sends forth his apostles as sheep among wolves. Now this is a lesson the disciples needed to learn that the Messiah and the kingdom of God would be rejected. I don't know if you've noticed in the gospel, but that's a lesson that they actually don't learn very quick, right? Even when Jesus says the Messiah is going to be the Christ, I will be betrayed and handed over to the Gentiles. I'm going to be mocked and killed. I'm going to be crucified. Even then, Peter, after saying, you are the Messiah, the Christ, the Son of the living God, he then says, no, this is not right. This is not how it's going to be. And even then, Jesus says, you don't savor the things that be of God, but the things that be of man. And later, Peter pulls out a sword trying to stop Jesus from being betrayed and arrested. It's very difficult for the disciples to understand that Christ would be rejected and the kingdom wouldn't be accepted. And I think it's hard for us to understand the Jewish mindset in the first century, because as Christians in the 21st century, we've We've experienced 2,000 years already of church history. We've been reading the Bible. We've been enlightened by the New Testament. But in the first century, the Jewish people did not expect the kingdom of God to be rejected. When you read the Old Testament, you read about the kingdom coming and taking over. Right? The kingdom come and, comes and dominates. And nations beat their swords into plowshares because of the power of the kingdom of God. And the kingdom of God, of course, comes with the Messiah. So when Messiah comes, and you'll even hear Jews today who don't believe in Jesus say this, when the Messiah comes, then the whole world will be full of God's wonderful knowledge and everything will be blessed. That's what will happen when the Messiah comes. In fact, that's how we know Jesus isn't the Messiah. Because you Christians say, Jesus is the Christ. Jesus is the Messiah. And we say, there's no peace in the earth. There's no righteousness in the earth. 
The whole world doesn't know God, and that's what the prophets said in the Old Testament. The disciples were of this mindset. It was contrary to popular belief. In the next few chapters, this is really the most important point that we need to keep in our minds, that Jesus is teaching them something that is out of the box, the kingdom of God and the Messiah, and therefore those who stand with the Messiah and those whom Christ sends out will be rejected. And brothers and sisters, the mystery in the Old Testament that Jesus had to show the apostles was that the Christ was coming twice. There was to be two comings of Christ, the Messiah. One, he would come and suffer rejection and pay for our sins. He would ascend into heaven after his resurrection and sit at God's right hand, waiting until he would come again to consummate what he's already accomplished in the first coming. You remember at the end he said, you slow, dull learners, slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. The key word there would be all. You believe some of what the prophets said. You're right that the Messiah is going to come and you're right that the kingdom of God is going to come on the earth. You're right that there's coming a time when the whole world is going to know God and peace and righteousness will be on the earth. Yes, but that is not all that the prophets say. The prophets also speak about the rejection of the Messiah. Christ prepares the apostles not only for indifference to the message of the kingdom, not only indifference, that means I'm not just going to send you out like sheep preaching to walls, but sheep preaching to wolves. He prepares them not for only indifference, but ferocious persecution. Now you'll notice that clearly this passage applies beyond the original commission of the twelve in Galilee. Notice in verse 17, Jesus says, Beware of men, for they will deliver you up to the councils. They will scourge you in their synagogues. You shall be brought before governors and kings for my sake, for a testimony to them and to the Gentiles. Now we have no knowledge of that happening when Jesus sent out the twelve at this time. In verse 21, brother shall deliver a brother to death, and the father, the child, and children shall rise up against their parents and cause them to be put to death. You will be hated of all men for my name's sake, and he that endures to the end shall be saved. We have no knowledge of that happening when the twelve were sent out at this time, of families putting other people, their own family members to death, and them being hated of all men. That's a broad statement. Now Jesus is speaking beyond just the ministry of the twelve and applying their commission to what's going to be in the future after he's crucified, resurrected, and ascended. And Christ sends out the body of Christ, the church, to preach the, the good news of the kingdom. So this applies to us. And in verse 22, their rejection is because of what? You will be hated of all men. Not a very nice saying. How many of you like that prospect? Everyone's going to hate you. And why? Because of me. Let that sink in for a moment. Everyone's going to hate you because of me. You might be the nicest guy. You don't want to offend anybody. But everyone's going to hate you because of me. On account of me. You see in verse 
17 to 22, everything they experience, everything they will experience, Christ himself experienced, didn't he? Beware of men. They will deliver you up to councils. Didn't that happen to the Messiah? He was betrayed by someone who was close to him. He was betrayed to a council who tried him. He was delivered up to governors and kings, Pontius Pilate and Herod. And he gave a testimony to them. They scourged him and they killed him. And Jesus is saying, if this is what they do to the Messiah, how much more are they going to do that to those who stand with the Messiah and whom the Messiah sends? The Messiah's ambassadors. Verse 24, the disciple's not above his master, nor the servant above his Lord. You know, brothers and sisters, we all claim Jesus as our Lord and our King and our Savior. We all stand with Jesus. Well, guess what? We're standing with someone who was rejected. We're standing with someone who was betrayed. We're standing with someone who was scourged and crucified and mocked and hated. It's, sometimes you can forget that when you surround yourself with only those who believe in Jesus and you sing about how wonderful Jesus is, and he is all that. But there's a world a non-Christian religious world, they're going to kick you out of their synagogues and they don't like Jesus. Many people in this world do not like Jesus because of who he is and what he stands for. And the disciple's not above his master. Verse 25, it's enough for the disciple that he's like his master and the servant as his Lord. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebub, they don't like Jesus so much they call him the devil, basically. In the eyes of many people, Jesus is the devil. Or the devil is in Jesus. How much more are they going to call the servant of this master in the household of Beelzebub? The question I, wanna, I want to ask now and this is very important that we consider because I think we know that the Pharisees called Jesus Beelzebub. Most people know that. But we don't often think about why. Think about it for a moment. Why did the Pharisees call Jesus Beelzebub? For what reason would they say that he had a devil? For what reason? Think about it for a moment. Was it because he was healing the sick? Now, it was after he had healed a sick person or cast out a demon that they said that. Is that why? Jesus shows up, heals people, casts out demons. Obviously, he's of the devil. <laughs> Is that why they called him Beelzebub? So adamantly, they wanted him gone because he helped people. I don't think that's it. Did they call Jesus Beelzebub because he didn't meet their messianic expectations? I think this is the popular view. You know, all the Jews are expecting a king to come and reign. Jesus is certainly the king. But he doesn't come in the way that they expect. They think he's going to come riding in on a horse. They think he's going to overthrow the Romans. They think the Messiah is going to come and bring the kingdom of God in power. Jesus doesn't do that. And so then they say, oh, you must be of the devil? <coughs> So, is that the reason? 
I suggest it's not the reason. See, if Jesus came along and he wasn't the king and he wasn't the conqueror that they were expecting, there's no reason that they would say he's of the devil if he's preaching the word of God and healing sick people. They might say, well, he's not the, the king that we're expecting, but he sure is a servant of God, right? So why would they say he's of the devil? And the answer is, they hated Jesus because Jesus preached the truth about righteousness and about God and about the law and about the kingdom of God. And that preaching of Jesus exposed the Pharisees to be frauds. And for that reason, they couldn't stand Jesus. You see, Jesus came along, and we already read it. You want to know why the Pharisees hated Jesus so much? Just read the Sermon on the Mount. Just read Matthew 23, when he says, you brood of vipers, you clean the outside, but the inside, you're still filthy. You see, the Pharisees, to the people, presented themselves to the people, and the people believed them to be the righteous people, the good guys. And so, in their false righteousness and their self-righteousness, they said Jesus was of the devil. Jesus came along and said, you are not righteous unless you're more righteous than the Pharisees. You're not righteous if you don't commit adultery, uh, just the physical act. You must not even look with lust. You're not righteous if you don't murder somebody physically. You're, you're unrighteous even if you have an angry thought towards another person. You know what? You're not, you're not righteous unless you're as perfect as God is perfect. Unless you love your neighbor just as you love yourself. And your neighbor is your enemy. Because that's how God loves. God sends his good things upon the just and the unjust. If you're kind to your own family members, that doesn't make you righteous. You're only righteous until you're like God, who is good and kind to even those who hate him. Jesus raised the bar beyond what the Pharisees had said it. And he said, you Pharisees are unrighteous. But that wasn't the only thing that made the Pharisees angry. Jesus also ate with tax collectors and sinners. Even though Jesus raised the bar of righteousness to absolute perfection, Jesus also preached, as we see all throughout the Gospel of John, that anyone who believes in him has eternal life and enters the kingdom of God. Isn't that amazing? So on the one hand, he raises the bar and says, it's absolute perfection and the Pharisees are a bunch of phonies. Everyone is a sinner. And yet, anyone who believes in me will not perish, but have eternal life. And the Pharisees didn't get it. They were upset that they were being dislodged and exposed. And it didn't make sense to them because they were so self-righteous and couldn't consider even their own sin and what the law had to say that they were incensed that Jesus would even suggest that, fair, that adulterers and tax collectors got into the kingdom of God before then. Now that seemed to them demonic. What, do you, what are you talking about, Jesus? What are you saying? We're the ones who are trying not to sin. We're the ones who are trying to obey the law. These adulterers and harlots are going to get into the kingdom of God before we? You're crazy. It's because they recognize their sin and look to Christ as their Savior. You, on the other hand, don't recognize your sin, and you won't look to me. 
modern day example of this because this is no different today than it's ever been. Brad and I were on campus a few years ago and I remember this one day we were standing at the book table and two young men came over to us and we were talking about what the gospel was. And we were showing them from scripture that righteousness cannot come by our own works because righteousness is absolute perfection and we're all sinners that fall short of that. And that the only way to be righteous is this other way that God has given to us through Jesus Christ. That God loves sinners so much who are unrighteous, he came and died upon the cross for our sins and paid the price for us so that we could be forgiven and seen as blameless and righteous in God's sight through faith. By believing, by turning away from our own confidence in ourselves and putting confidence in what he's done and believing in him and his goodness. And so they said, so you're saying that in order to have eternal life and enter the kingdom of God, we don't, we, the, the requirement is not to keep the commandments, but it's to believe? And we said, yes, because if the requirement is to keep the commandments, none of us are going to make it, right? <laughs> because if I say, yes, we have to keep the commandments, I condemn myself and everybody because no one does. And the Bible teaches us that that way doesn't work. The only way to be saved is through faith in Jesus Christ. That Jesus has done something for us so that we can be saved as sinners. And they said, they, they couldn't get off that fact. You mean you don't have to keep the commandments in order to be... And this guy pointed the finger at us and said, you guys are of the devil. Because only the devil would say, you don't have to keep the commandments. I was reminded of this passage. That is the very same issue that we're dealing with here with Jesus and the apostles. Why else would they call them Beelzebub? Unless they were radically exposing self-righteousness and giving hope to those whom the self-righteous think there is no hope. Only the devil would say a sinner could be accepted. And let's make this very clear. The gospel message is not that sinners in and of themselves as they are, are acceptable. Sin is not acceptable to God, but that God has dealt with our sin through Jesus Christ. God has paid the penalty for sin, and he is now just to accept sinners who believe in his son and in the work of redemption. In verse 21, when it says that brother shall deliver up brother to death and father the child, as we're going to see also later in this chapter, families are going to be torn apart by this gospel. Now that's not a good thing. That is not what Jesus wants to happen, but that is what is going to happen at this time. And you have to accept that fact Notice verse 34. Think not that I am come to send peace on the earth. Now, when Jesus was born, the angel said, peace on earth. So this is speaking at another level. Of course, at one level, Jesus came to bring peace. And Jesus is not saying here that he doesn't want to bring peace, but this is inevitably what's going to happen. This is realism. Don't think that the Christ in his first coming has brought peace. I've come to bring a sword. And this is what's going to happen. 
I have come to set a man at variance against his father and the daughter against her mother and the daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law and a man's foe shall be the they of his own household. And therefore he that loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me and he that loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. You have to just accept the fact that this gospel is going to tear families apart. That's not a happy thought. But that's what's going to happen. And that's indeed what did happen. But who are you going to stand with? Who are you going to believe? Many people take these verses, verse 21, to thinking that in the last days, family relationships will be so corrupted by sin. Like, you know, children won't respect their parents in the last days. But people have been complaining about that for thousands of years, that children don't respect their parents. What this is talking about is a religiously fueled persecution, a religiously fueled division in a family. And I want to remind you that in the book of Deuteronomy chapter 13, in the law of Moses, it says that if one of your own family members comes and seeks to draw you away from Jehovah, to draw you away from the true worship of God, then you are to be the first one to put their, to put them to death. You see, what happens is when the gospel is preached and believed, family members think, these guys are of the devil. My own family members are departing from the Lord by believing in Jesus. A phenomenon that's been, we've experienced for 2,000 years. And so they'll put you to death on account of Christ and on account of faith in Christ. This isn't talking about children disrespecting parents, but families being torn apart because of Christ. So Christ calls us to be wise as serpents, to understand these things, and to be harmless like doves. If we're going to survive in a world of wolves as sheep, we're going to need to be wise and also harmless. Peter talks about this in 1 Peter. He says, be above reproach. So even if they do kill you, make sure you're killed for Christ's sake and not because you're a murderer or a thief. Brothers and sisters, between the comings of Christ, Jesus has come and, been, and has been rejected. He has sent us forth to preach and he promised us rejection. Until the second coming, we live in a time where the church is to be a witness and we will witness with our blood. Martyrs are witnesses. In fact, the word is the exact same thing in the Greek. This is a time for the church to preach the gospel into all the world, expecting rejection. At this time, we as Christians are not to have unrealistic expectations. Sometimes you hear Christians talk about, well, if we just did it this way, if we just did it that way, and if we just said it this way, and if we just prayed long enough, then our whole city would be converted to Christ. You ever hear that before? Often revivalists talk like that. Our whole city will be turned to Christ. Our whole country will be turned back to God. It's a really wonderful thought, but it's not a realistic expectation. Because Jesus promises that we are like sheep among wolves and that the message is to expect rejection. Now this often creates an opposite extreme and many people do nothing. 
They think, well, if the message is going to be rejected, then I'm not going to preach the gospel at all. I might as well just sit back and, yeah, it's a good excuse for them to not do anything. Many people use that as an excuse. Sheep among wolves? All right, good excuse to stay home, right? If we want to see what this looks like, we need only to read the book of Acts, where the church labored diligently preaching the gospel and experiencing rejection wherever they went. The early church did not turn the whole world to Christ. Now, much of the Western world was Christianized, you could say, but that doesn't mean the whole world was born again and saved and understood righteousness through faith. Those who have understood the gospel from the very beginning until today have been few. And while the name of Christ is emblazoned all across the Western world, understanding Christ and having true faith in his grace is very rare. And the history of the last 2,000 years has shown us that the issue truly is about righteousness through faith versus righteousness through works. Righteousness through faith being the true faith in the Christ who is rejected. And you'll remember that many, many people lost their lives and suffered greatly at the hands of those who claimed to be Christians because of their stand for God's grace. So we are not to have unrealistic expectations. We're not to think that if I just said it the right way or was just a certain way, then people would get saved left, right, and center. Jesus Christ had no error in his teaching or flaw in his presentation, and yet he was rejected. And this brings us to our second section in the sermon. In light of what we are to expect, what is the mindset that we should have in light of this. Number one, as I've already mentioned, we need to recognize the time that we live in and our commission that God has for us and labor diligently for Christ's sake. Each one of us is called to labor diligently for the sake of Christ at this time and spread the good news in this world understanding that we're going to be rejected. We are not to allow rejection to prevent us from preaching the gospel. The world needs to hear the good news of Christ. The love of God that sent Christ into a hostile world is the same love of God that should motivate us to preach the gospel in all the world. Jesus says in this next portion that we read, fear not three times. Notice verse 26, fear, fear them not. Verse 28, fear not. And verse 31, fear not. What this teaches us is that the main reason that Christians do not witness is fear, but the commission must be fulfilled, and therefore our fears must be subdued. Nothing must stop the preaching of the gospel. Isn't it true that fear is what keeps people from sharing the gospel? That's, that's right here, in the commission to go. Don't fear, don't fear, don't fear. That's what keeps people. But it's not a good excuse. And Jesus gives us the tools, the teaching, 
that will help us overcome our fears. Three things he says. Do not fear, verse 26, misrepresentation. Do not fear being misrepresented. They're going to call you the devil. They called me the devil. Don't fear, therefore, because there's nothing covered that shall not be revealed and hid that shall not be known. Jesus encourages us that one day all will be revealed and all misrepresentation will be vindicated. If they call you a devil, one day the world will understand and know. We're to expect being called the devil. Jesus suffered it himself. But one day their sins will be manifested. And those whom the world sees as righteous will one day be seen to actually have been unrighteous. And those whom the world calls the devil will actually one day be seen to be the children of God. And Christ, who men have rejected, will one day be seen to be the true Savior and the true Messiah. All will come to the light, brothers and sisters. All will come to the light. One day everyone will know. Do not fear, therefore. You remember in Colossians chapter 3, verse 3, the Apostle Paul says, You are dead, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. So at this time, who you are in Christ is not known to the world. It's a hidden thing seen only by those who have faith. But he also goes on to say, When Christ, who is our life, shall appear, when he is made manifest, then shall you also appear with him. In glory. What a wonderful hope that Jesus gives us. In the Gospel of Mark, Jesus says a very similar thing, but this time he says, No one puts a candle. No one lights a candle and puts it under a bushel, but he puts it on a candlestick so that it will shine and give light to the whole house. Jesus wants to encourage us, and he commissions us in verse 27 to preach to proclaim, even on the rooftops, the gospel of the kingdom of God, even if we'll be rejected, because we know one day all will be vindicated. Therefore, don't fear misrepresentation. Number two, verse 28, he goes even further, not just misrepresentation. Don't fear being misunderstood. Don't, be, don't fear being ridiculed. Don't, peer, don't fear people mocking you. Verse 28, don't even fear physical death because they will put you to death. Do not fear death, because that is not the worst thing that can happen to you. Isn't that what Jesus says? Verse 28, not fear those who kill the body. They're not able to do anything else after that. All they can, Jesus says all they can do is kill the body. See, he's thinking differently than most people think. Most people think, if the body's killed, that's all I got, Right? That's the worst thing that anyone could possibly do is kill me. Jesus says, that's, that's not the worst thing that can happen to you. They can't do anything else after that. But there is one whom you should fear. You see, Jesus is not saying all fear is bad. There is a fear we ought to have. There's a fear that displaces all of their fear. That is the fear of God. Colonel James Gardiner, he was a Scottish soldier, he was wounded many times in battle. He was known to say, I fear God, and therefore there is none else that I need fear. <laughs> kind of made him the soldier that he was. 
Fear God. There's a, it is not the worst thing that can happen to you. Brothers and sisters, do not be afraid to preach the gospel because you might get physically harmed or killed. Jesus says in verse 32 and 33, Whoever therefore shall confess me before man, him will I confess also before my Father which is in heaven. Whoever shall deny me before man, him will I also deny before my Father who is in heaven. To confess him, in the Greek, it's even stronger than that. The Greek is, whoever will confess in me before men, him will I confess that I confess in them before my Father who is in heaven. In a sense, you're saying, I am one with Jesus. I'm in solidarity with Jesus. Jesus and I belong together. And you say this before men. And since they hate Christ, they'll hate you on account of it. And Jesus says, if you belong to me, then when you stand before my Father in heaven, I will confess to him, this one belongs to me also. Brothers and sisters, to confess Christ will cost much, but to not confess him will cost more. R.T. France writes, here we see that a man standing before God is thus explicitly made to depend on his relationship to Jesus. And Jesus himself, himself stands in the role of the arbiter of man's ultimate destiny. The question is, you must choose which solidarity you prefer, with Christ and God or with the world. Who do you fear more? Do you fear that if I am a Christian, I'm going to be ridiculed and ki killed, perhaps, if I'm a Christian. So I don't want to be a Christian because I fear being killed. Or do you fear God, who says, who tells us, don't fear them. Fear what God will do if you do not stand with Christ in his righteousness. These are important questions that we need to ask ourselves. Who do you fear more, the world or, or God? Don't fear, he says. Rather, fear God. And lastly, he says, do not fear once again. And it's amazing that right after Jesus says that God is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Now that's just a fact. That's not what God wants to do. But that is the punishment for sin. If you do not stand with Christ and be a Christian and believe in him. And yet after that very sobering and severe statement, in verse 29, there's a beautiful comforting statement. Are not two sparrows sold for a farthing and one of them shall not fall on the ground without your father? But the, the very hairs of your head are numbered. Do not fear, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. Here we see the goodness or the, you could say, the kindness and the severity of God. In one breath, Jesus says, God is able to destroy your soul and body in hell. And then the next breath, he says, he takes care even of the little sparrows. He counts all the hairs on your head. He cares for you. 
God is in control of even the smallest details and minutia of life. There's probably not a worm that dies or an ant that dies without the Lord knowing and controlling that situation. And the hairs of your head are numbered. How many of you have ever taken the time to count the hairs in your head? Why? It's not important to you. You don't count things but that are important to you. We count money, right? That's important for us to know how much money we've got. Um, some sport fans will count how many times their sports team has won a uh, championship because that's important to them. Jesus is saying, God has counted the hairs on your head. You are important to him. Every bit of you is important to him. Your physical well-being is important to God. You are far more valuable to God than even many sparrows. And brothers and sisters, that's a wonderful statement of Jesus, that you are valuable to God. And just enjoy that and remember it. Therefore, every believer in God may say to any fearful thing that may happen, just like as Jesus said in John 19, 11, you could have no power at all against me unless it were given you from above. That's what Jesus said when he stood on the brink of his own death. He didn't just think, where's God? I'm out of God's hands. I'm about to die. He said, you would not be able to touch me if it wasn't for my Father giving you the authority to do so. We as Christians can say that as well. That doesn't mean that we aren't going to suffer. Sparrows and Christians die. This statement is not that you won't die or that you won't suffer persecution, but that even though God does not remove tribulation, you can know that the God who values you and cares for you and, and loves you, for him to permit this thing to happen is not a proof that he's not present is not a proof that he's not caring but it is a proof that he loves you this is for your good the God who loves you is in control don't fear therefore he says go out and preach whatever happens to you God is the, the God who loves you and values you is in control in the hands of God we are truly completely safe so in conclusion, ask yourself this morning, are you a Christian or not? Do you believe and confess that you are one with Jesus and belong to the rejected Messiah? Now you must know full well that you are standing with the one that the world hates the one that was rejected, betrayed, scourged, mocked, crucified, and yet the one who is coming again in great power and glory. It is on account of Jesus and Jesus only, not of ourselves, that we have peace and joy, but it is also on account of Jesus that we will have opposition and hardship. Our faith is in his death for our sins and righteousness that comes through faith in him is both our salvation and the cause of our tribulation. But there is an end, Jesus says, and all shall be 
revealed. If you're not a Christian this morning, if you do not have peace with God through Jesus Christ, if you do not believe the gospel of the kingdom, maybe you're very religious. Maybe you're trying to be righteous by your own works. Maybe you're trying to be acceptable by God by keeping his commandments. The truth is you don't keep his commandments. The truth is you're not acceptable to God by your own works. The truth is you're a sinner. But the good news is that God loves you and he calls you to believe that he loves you. He calls you to believe that he loves you so much that even though you're a sinner, that doesn't close his heart off towards you. The proof of that is that he sent his son to die for your sins, to take away your sins by his atoning death on the cross. He came to save you, and he will save you even today if you believe in him, even if you've rejected him up until today, even if you've ignored his gospel up until today, even if you're worse than Sodom and Gomorrah up until today. Jesus will save you today if you trust in him and his love and grace for you as a sinful person. And if you are a Christian this morning, then recognize the time and the commission. We live in an age between the first and the second coming when we are to expect that we live in this world as sheep among wolves. We are to expect rejection, persecution, ridicule, and misunderstanding. However, that is not to prevent us from sharing the gospel. That is not to prevent us from fulfilling the commission that God has called us to. Are you afraid? Let your fears be set aside by these promises that Christ has given. Brothers and sisters, the gospel must be preached in all the earth and then the end will come. Jesus said, Truly the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Let's pray. Lord God in heaven, these words that we read this morning are so sobering. Often they break into our world. and shake us. Lord, you want us to live lives in context. You want us to see why we're here, the time that we live, and what we're called to do. Lord, I pray for all your saints, all those who have believed, all those who are righteous through faith, that we would take heed to what Jesus said about not fearing man. And Lord, that we would see that there is a great need to preach the gospel before you come. Let nothing come between us and that task. Give us courage, Lord. And Lord, I pray for anyone who is here that does not have peace with you, that they would make peace with you this day, realizing that it's a gift and not something they have to work for. Lord, we thank you that you're coming again. We thank you that through your death on the cross, we are saved from the wrath to come, and we will be with you forever. We praise you this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.